All right, we are back. We were last seen about hip deep in uh, the Jeffrey Tubin article about attorney Michael Cohen beginning his three-year sentence for the actions he took for the benefit of his boss, Donald Trump. Lost in the shuffle of all of the information uh, out there in the press about Cohen uh, seems to be the fact that he's paying for his lack of cooperation. Jeffrey Tubin notes that as Cohen approached his sentencing date before Judge William Pauley, the true cost of his failure to cut a deal with the Southern District became apparent. When the probation department set Cohn's sentencing guideline range at 51 to 63 months, attorney Petrio sought a sentence of probation. The Southern District prosecutors responded with a scathing memorandum writing that Cohn committed four distinct federal crimes over a period of several years. He was motivated to do so by personal greed and repeatedly used his power and influence for deceptive ends. Now, he seeks extraordinary leniency, a sentence of no jail time, based principally on his rose-colored view of the seriousness of the crimes. Noted Jeffrey Tubin, Robert Mueller's team gave Judge Powley a much more benign portrait of Cohen's behavior, saying he has taken significant steps to mitigate his criminal conduct and provided credible and consistent cooperation. On December 12th, the judge gave Cohen some credit for his dealings with the government and imposed a sentence of 36 months. Here's something I did not know. Parole has evidently been abolished in the federal system, so even with good behavior, Cohen will be obliged to serve at least 85% of that sentence. Under the circumstances, this explains his comment to Tubin that I now have congressional committees asking me for more information based on information I have already given. I'm not going to take another minute out of my family's time with me in order to do anything more without knowing what benefit there now is to me. But on February 27th, abandoned and ridiculed by Trump, Cohen decided to exact a public form of revenge. At that point, as you no doubt were paying attention and noted, he gave a full day of dramatic testimony before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. In his opening statement, he denounced Trump as passionately as he had once defended him, calling him a racist, a con man, and a cheat. Democrats embraced him. Republicans disparaged him as a turncoat and a liar. During one exchange with the Republicans, Cohn said, I'm responsible for your silliness because I did the same thing that you're doing now for 10 years. I protected Mr. Trump for 10 years. Cohn offered tantalizing clues about other misconduct by Trump, including possible bank and insurance fraud. In February, his lawyers offered to bring him to the Southern District to assist in their ongoing investigations, but prosecutors refused to meet with him. Under the federal criminal rules, the only way Cohen's sentences can be reduced or delayed now is if the prosecutors ask for it. And this, has become clear, is not something they are going to do. So Jeffrey Tubin notes that the Southern District, on which so many of the president's adversaries have pinned their hopes, may have limited potential to bring him down. Tubin concludes the piece by noting that for a decade, Michael Cohen cleaned up Donald Trump's messes. He embraced Trump so uncritically that he wound up committing crimes on his behalf, which I think is an excellent summary. Before abandoning this provocative article, though, I do want to cite a couple of details which I was quite unaware of, and I think (laughs) all the readers were pretty much unaware of, which is that in looking into the crimes for which Michael Cohn is being sent away for, illegal campaign contributions based on his efforts to bury the stories about Trump's extramarital affairs with Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, there are some other key players involved, 
Alan Weisselberg, the long-tenured chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, Donald Trump Jr., and David Pecker, the longtime friend of Trump who was the chief executive of American Media Inc., the parent company of the National Enquirer, which bought up Karen McDougal's story and then buried it. To cover up the Stormy Daniels story, Michael Cohen used his own money to pay her off and then was reimbursed by the Trump Organization, part of why he's going to jail. But I'm more intrigued by the McDougal story. Cohen's version of the payment plan to McDougal, organized with Alan Weisselberg, is backed up by an audio recording that he made of a conversation with Trump. On the recording, Cohen says to Trump, I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up. Trump interrupts, so what do we got to pay for this, 150 Cohen answers, yes. David Pecker's AMI bought the rights to publish McDougal's fitness columns and to feature her on the covers of two of its fitness magazines. Factoring in a $25,000 value to McDougal from this, Conan Pecker said Trump would be liable for only $125,000 of the company's payment. But Trump, being Trump, never paid anything to AMI. According to Michael Cohn, McDougal's appearances on the cover of one of the magazines, Muscle and Fitness Hers, led to a sizable increase in sales, and Trump decided that AMI had received its money's worth in the deal. David Pecker did not pursue Donald Trump for failing to pay him back, but Cohn said he used to yell at Cohn about it. Cohn told Tubin that he would say to Pecker, David, why are you yelling at me? Go yell at Trump. Other sources suggested that AMI stopped asking for reimbursement on the advice of its lawyers. In any event, the National Enquirer never disclosed Trump's relationship with McDougal. I just have to love this aspect of the whole Trump saga. David Pecker pays $150,000 to save Trump's ass, after which Trump takes the position of, you got your money's worth out of this whole deal. I'm not paying you anything. We can only presume that Donald Trump's strategy toward David Pecker is to be nice enough to him to keep him on his good side, which reminds us of what Lyndon Baines Johnson once said about J. Edgar Hoover. When it was leaked to the press by someone in the administration that Johnson was thinking about retiring J. Edgar, and the word evidently got to Hoover, Johnson quickly put together a press conference during which time he announced that J. Edgar Hoover was going to be the director of the FBI for life. Which, like a banana republic dictator, J. Edgar Hoover was. Asked about his second thoughts on Hoover, LBJ responded, I'd rather have him inside the tent peeing out than outside the tent peeing in. Or words to that effect. And since there is a great deal about the 36th president of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, that applies to the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, I'd like to, at this point, pull out Robert Cairo's book, The Years of Lyndon Johnson, which I was praising very highly on this program a week or two ago, and uh, pull a few items out of it for inspection. Said Robert Cairo, something that is reminiscent of what is being said about Donald Trump currently, that he's, of course, divorcing his business uh, activities from his presidential duties. Said Cairo, all during Lyndon Johnson's presidency, he either himself or through a press secretary would insist that he had divorced himself completely from his business interests. His press secretary and aide, George Reedy, said, as the American people know, in what was one of many such statements, all approved word for word by the president, the president has devoted all his time and energy to the public business 
and he is not engaged in any private enterprise directly or indirectly. As is remarkably detailed in this book, this, of course, was never true. And it's worth taking a few minutes to detail some of these matters. Cairo also says that all his life, Lyndon Johnson had made use of any political weapon on which he could lay his hands or which he could invent, any power he could find or devise as a means to attain his ends, and he had employed those weapons to the hilt, with a ruthlessness startling even to men who had believed themselves inured to the ruthlessness of politics. Carey describes LBJ's actions taken against Margaret Mayer, someone whose work was never as well known as that of her colleagues on Eastern and national publications, but Margaret Mayer was a very enterprising reporter who would later, as chief of the Dallas Times-Herald's Washington Bureau, become one of the first women to head the Washington Bureau of a major newspaper. In 1963, 41 years old, she was a reporter at the Times-Herald's Austin Bureau and became curious about the many rumors she was hearing about Johnson's Texas Broadcasting Company and the way it attracted advertisers. Johnson's longtime aide, Horace Busby, said, Margaret always knew the right questions to ask. Now, there were two TV stations in Austin, Texas, both of which owned by, supposedly, Lady Bird Johnson. When Mayer began an investigation of KTBC and KDBC-TV, radio and television, and the station's general manager, Jesse Callum, refused to answer her questions, she put some of them, not particularly probing, but just general questions about the scope of the station's operations, in a letter that she personally delivered to Johnson at his ranch in January of 1964. After getting the letter, the president telephoned the Times-Herald's managing editor, Albert Jackson. In taped recordings, which still exist, Johnson said, I got a letter from Margaret Mayer. worried me a little bit. He then read some of the questions to Albert Jackson, the managing editor, to which Jackson, a longtime LBJ supporter, said, Well, he hadn't known about the letter, but, quote, she certainly shouldn't be doing it, and I can assure you that it'll be stopped, unquote. That wasn't good enough for Johnson. When Jackson said he would talk to our people about the best way to stop it, Johnson told him what to say to those people. The names he mentioned during the conversation were those of the Times-Herald's publisher and board chairman, John Runyon, the paper's president, James Chambers, and Clyde Rembert, president of the radio and TV stations. KRLD and KRLD-TV owned by the paper. Johnson's instructions included references to the power of the federal government and of the president in particular, and they included as well a hint that were Ms. Mayer not stopped, he might use those powers against the newspaper. Johnson said, tell them that you all don't want to be picking a fight with somebody like this. If a newspaper was investigated by the federal government, a particularly vulnerable area would be its profitable radio and TV stations, since all broadcasting stations are under the authority of the FCC. And as should be noted to all listeners, the FCC possesses virtually unchallengeable authority over every aspect of a station's operation. During the conversation, Johnson dropped a hint that the investigations might not just include that of the stations, but of all the people involved in the operations, if these columns he found distasteful continued. Johnson also told Jackson, don't let Mayer know he had intervened, saying a president ought to be calling about BS like this. But he wanted her investigation stopped, and he wanted it stopped fast. So when Jackson said he would relay the message to the paper's owners, Johnson said, do that, and let me know in the morning. 
In the morning at 11 o'clock Sunday, the editor telephoned to reassure the president, we'll take care of the thing tomorrow. To get the assurances of the Houston Chronicle's editor that it would support him as long as he was president, he threatened to close nearby Air Force bases to cause financial hardship. And another parallel story, parallel to what is going on today, we have this from Robert Cairo. 73-year-old Bascom Timmons had been reporting from Washington since 1912. He'd established his own news bureau, which represented more than a dozen newspapers in the capital. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram was the one to which he devoted most of his time, and the paper identified him as its chief Washington correspondent. A former president of the National Press Club and a member of the Hall of Fame of Sigma Delta Chi, the National Journalistic Honor Society, he was the dean of Texas newspapermen in Washington and enjoyed, as colleagues were to say, the respect of all the newspaper people in town and the love of many congressmen. Those feelings were not shared by Lyndon Johnson. Timmons' articles and columns had been infuriating him for years, and during Christmas in 1963, he made a telephone call to the Star-Telegram's owner, Eamon Carter Jr. During the call, the recent decision to close Fort Worth's Army Depot with its 2,600 soldiers was mentioned by the president, as was Fort Worth's Carswell Air Force Base, home of six Strategic Air Command squadrons, and a non-military project to link, this one amazes me, landlocked Fort Worth to the Gulf of Mexico. It was called the Trinity River Navigation Project. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Texas uh, geography, take a look at how far Fort Worth is from the Gulf of Mexico. But by this plan, back in the 60s, through dredging and construction of a series of dams, it would make a river navigable to barges all the way from Fort Worth to the Gulf, 365 miles away. The estimated cost would be a billion dollars. That's a billion 1963 dollars and had long been a cherished dream of Eamon Carter Sr. Again, the Star-Telegram's owner. After mentioning all these expensive projects to the owner of the paper, Johnson said, now you tell your crowd over at the Star-Telegram that you want to be damn sure you've got a competent a man and as thorough a man and as attentive a man as the New York Times has got to those pre- press conferences because you want the president's home state to be represented by, by real intelligence. Carter understood what the president was getting at because he knew how Johnson felt about Timmons. In fact, Johnson had complained to him already about the reporter. We're going to try retiring Bascom, which is going to be very hard, the publisher said. I know you told me some things about him once before. Said Robert Caro, understanding was not what Johnson had in mind. He was no longer merely a senator or vice president. He became more explicit about what a president might do with his power. You ought to get the best damn fellow you can for the Star Telegram, he said. And I'd have a man there, when he speaks up, he doesn't say, I'm Bascom Timmons. And that, the president said, will have its effect on other things because they're going to put a lot of strategic air command bases together. They're going to phase a lot of stuff, and it's going to be a complete overhaul. And if I were you, I'd just get the best damn person I could and have him representing me. I'd get a good man covering the White House. Cairo notes that retiring Timmons was accomplished by the Star-Telegram sending in 1964 one additional reporter, and in 1965 another, to Washington to supplement Timmons' coverage of the paper and gradually phasing Timmons out of the paper. Timmons himself appears to have been unaware of Johnson's role in his phasing out. 
Cairo notes that Carswell Air Force Base continued in service, its 7th Heavy Bomb Wing flying more than 1,300 bombing missions over Vietnam. As for the Trinity River Navigation Project, in 1965, the Johnson administration proposed and Congress approved authorization of the Barge Canal to connect Fort Worth to the Gulf at a cost of just under a billion dollars. By the end of Johnson's presidency, only a small portion of the project had been completed, and it was abandoned. And as for Johnson's putting all of his business interests into a blind trust over which he had no control, it turns out that the judge, who was supposed to be managing the trust and the people in charge of his lucrative television and radio stations in Austin, in fact, were dealt with somewhat differently than turning control over to them. Very early in the Johnson presidency, a new telephone was placed on a counter in the kitchen of the judge's home, the judge who was instead of the, in, in running the trust, and was linked by a private telephone circuit to the LBJ Ranch and the White House. Robert Cairo tracked down the judge's partner, a man named Thomas Ferguson, an influential Hill Country politician, former district judge and chairman of the Texas State Board of Insurance, and asked him whether Johnson conducted personal business over those phone lines. Ferguson replied, oh yeah, he and Morrison were talking every day. You see, Morrison was trustee of all his property, one of them blind trust, wasn't very blind. Cairo asked Ferguson if he himself had conducted business for Johnson during his presidency. Myself? Oh yes, Ferguson replied, providing the details of several such transactions. Anyway, LBJ set things up so all these phone calls he made to people managing his businesses did not go through the White House switchboard and thus there's no official record of them. Do you imagine that a half century later that similar precautions might be being made to conduct Trump's businesses? We would speculate that it is possible that such things are going on. We would also like to openly speculate that some phone calls similar to those made by LBJ to the business people who controlled ultimately what reporters report, well, they're probably getting some talkings too, we suspect. Just speculating. Why don't we leave Washington, D.C. in the hill country of Texas and come back closer to home here in California, where we live and operate. I do want to talk a little bit more about Silicon Valley before we close today's show, and of course, the tech that it's using to benefit all of our lives. But first, I want to say a word or two about our Governor Gavin Newsom. Writing in the Sacramento Bee, Daryl Smith and Sam Stanton noted last month, that ignoring Governor Gavin Newsom's moratorium on capital punishment, prosecutors from four California counties announced in court they will seek the death penalty against Golden State killer slash Eastside rapist suspect Joseph James D'Angelo if he is convicted. The article notes that Sacramento County District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert and other prosecutors have previously argued that Newsom's moratorium has no impact in their ability to seek death penalty sentences. Further commentary on this matter comes from George Skelton, writing in the Los Angeles Times, which I shall quote from the April 28th piece. One year ago Wednesday, a former policeman was arrested and accused of being the Golden State Killer who raped and murdered up and down California in the 70s and 80s. If anyone deserves the death penalty, it's the Golden State Killer, also known as the East Area Rapist, the Visalia Ransacker, the Creek Bed Killer, or Original Night Stalker, depending upon the community he terrorized. He is suspected of raping more than 50 women and charged with 13 serial murders. Orange County DA Todd Spitzer said he'd break into people's homes at night and have the wife tie the husband up. 
Then he would tie up the woman. He'd put saucers and cups on the husband's back as an alarm system and tell them that if while raping his wife, he heard the cups and saucers move, he'd kill them both. Then he'd rape the wife and kill them anyway. In some cases, their children were at home hiding in the closet. What I find astonishing is in this piece written on April 28th is that Skelton notes that the suspect has not yet entered a plea. He's been in custody for over a year, and he has not yet entered a plea. What's up with that? Says Skelton, any death penalty verdict would be moot while Gavin Newsom is governor. On March 13th, breaking a campaign promise to abide by the death penalty law, he declared a moratorium on executions in California during his tenure. He granted reprieves to all 737 condemned killers on San Quentin's death row. They'll stay locked up. Said Newsom, the intentional killing of another person is wrong, and as governor, I will not oversee the execution of any individual. Newsom said capital punishment has discriminated against defendants who are mentally ill, black and brown, or can't afford expensive legal representation. Said George Skelton, D'Angelo won't be discriminated against because he's black or brown. He's white. Newsom also talked to reporters about innocent people being executed. Perhaps so in other states, but no one has ever provided proof of an innocent person being executed in California, at least in modern times. Five have been exonerated on California's death row as a sign of safeguards working. Skelton notes, it's unlikely there'll be much question about the guilt of the Golden State Killer. However, because of so many murders and DNA linking the victims and the suspect. Skelton adds that if Newsom thought he was ridding himself of the death penalty issue for the duration of his governorship, he was mistaken. The Golden State Killer trial will be warming up about the time Newsom is running for re-election in 2022 or eyeing the presidency soon after. The idea that this guy arrested a year ago isn't going to go to trial until 2022 is, uh, is an indictment of our system. We'll continue to follow this case. Anyway, back to tech. We mentioned this program some time ago that the Tesla, I believe it was the Tesla's system of uh, driverless cars, could easily be confused by stripes or spots on the highway. You would think that that was a clue to change lanes. In the news story that was put out about this, it was implied that, well, they're working on this, and they're just a, there's a technical glitch here in this issue. But it turns out the issue may run much, much deeper than that. New Scientist article on the April 27th issue, piece by Chris Baraniuk, notes that machine minds can misinterpret pictures in which just a few pixels have been tampered with, and it will take drastic measures to fight this AI hacking, to quote from the piece. A vehicle is driving slowly at the top floor of a multi-story car park. Footage from an onboard camera shows that an artificial intelligence system controlling it can see ranks of cars to the left. And is that a person off to the right? Straight ahead, there's something else. To any human observer, it's obviously a stop sign but AI can't seem to make sense of it and keeps on driving. This was only a stunt. Researchers had deliberately stuck pieces of black tape on the stop sign to study how it confused the machine mind. Yet this and several similar demonstrations are revealing something disturbing. AI can be hacked, and you don't even need to break passwords to launch an attack. As the technology begins to find more and more applications that affect our lives, this is a threat we need to take seriously. The article quotes Battistio Biggio at the University of Cagliari in Italy saying it's just a matter of time before people find ways of monetizing attacks like this. The article quotes an Ian Goodfellow, noting that uh, studies had shown that handwritten numbers, easily identifiable to humans, we, we probably have direct experiences with this, with, you know, is this really you? Can you identify this number on various interactions on the web? Um, individual pixels were tampered with, 
and distorted. And as people watched and as researchers watched, they've shown that the digital recognizing AI gave an incorrect answer every time. They thought it'd be easy to make this resistant to these adversarial attacks, but that hasn't happened. Goodfellow, who's now a machine learning researcher at Apple, is deeply concerned. The piece cites some previous uh, hacks of deep learning AIs before, one we talked about in this program in late 2017. Researchers at MIT managed to fool an AI into misclassifying multiple images of model turtles taking at different angles just by altering the pattern on the turtle's shell. The study made headlines partly because the AI was tricked into thinking the turtle was a rifle. That is possible, I note, because unlike us, AI doesn't look at an image as a whole. It does statistics on the data. They said if you understand how a deep learning system does this, you can work out what small changes are needed to make it think an image is something else entirely. The same principle can be applied to text, audio, and video. For instance, one team tricked the speech transcribing tool into hearing commands that were just not there. Anyway, the article cites some possible options to fight back on this, have AI focus not just on pixels, but to recognize larger features that it sees. You know, does it see eyes, a nose, fur, a tail? And they said you may be unsurprised to hear that among those eager to solve this problem is the United States military. Its research arm, DARPA, is running a competition to find artificial neural networks that can answer questions containing a tricky mix of real-world concepts. The idea is to develop AIs with common sense. Well, good luck with that. As regards common sense, we would like to cite an editorial about uh, the FTC's latest probe of Facebook that appeared in the East Bay Times. Last week, the editorial notes that Facebook announced it is expecting to face a record fine of over $5 billion from the FTC over privacy violations connected to the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2016. The editors note that the penalty would be the FTC's biggest fine for a technologic firm. But $5 billion is a drop in the bucket for a tech giant that racked up $15 billion in revenue for just the first quarter of this year. A 26% jump from 2018, by the way. The fine won't get Facebook to change its ways. The article goes on. The FTC has a well-deserved reputation as an understaffed, weak enforcer with a limited portfolio of regulations. Congress deserves much of the blame because it hasn't given the FTC the tools it needs. The United States remains the world's only advanced nation without tough online consumer protections, leaving Facebook to essentially police itself. The editors note that the sooner Congress passes an Internet Bill of Rights, such as the ones proposed by Representative Ro Khanna from Santa Clara, the better. And in the final moment of hair pulling, in this case of a personal nature, yours truly would like to lament the fact that I received an email some months back about an address I had on Gmail that someone was trying to change the password of. I was reassured that Google had stopped this. Now, I should have taken some more direct action on this, but did not do so and was dismayed to see about two weeks ago, that apparently the password on that address had been changed by someone, not me. And that's where the fun began. As I attempted to reach Google, and if, if you, dear listener, have discovered any way of reaching an actual human being at Google, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. There are phone numbers that exist, but when you call them, they'll refer you to websites to fix these problems. Trouble is, when you go through all the steps they ask of you on the websites, well, what I wound up with repeatedly was, well, we can't confirm that that address is yours, even though they 
knew my phone number. They knew the sites that it was linked to. That's how they could inform me of the matter in the first place. But despite answering the security questions they asked me correctly, they just couldn't decide whether this was me or not. But they would work on it, they implied, and asked for an address to which they could send the information, which was the same address they already had. By the way, this is Google that monitors everything about what we're doing all the time when we click onto Google. The company that is monetizing us to a frightening degree, scaring people with what they know about us, well, that's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, when you ask them for help and provide them with information about yourself, they seem to draw a blank. One of the circumstances I can't say that I feel too bad about the fact that uh, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, apparently fell $1 billion short of revenue forecast for the first quarter, upsetting people in Wall Street and making the stock price drop. You know, there's trouble over at Google. Apparently, uh, former CEO Eric Schmidt announced that he's leaving the board this week. And they're all apparently in a big dither over the loss of ad revenues. Well, my heart sure goes out to him on that one, but I would ask the company, uh, you know, if you thought about maybe assisting the people that use your services. But then that circles back to the fact that we're not really the customers, are we? We're the product being sold to the actual customers. Let us close by noting that this program was produced by Edward McMillan and that you have been listening to Radio Parallax. And we'll see you next week at the same time.